1: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of From Hostage to Hero. I'm your host, Sari Delamont, and uh, happy to be with you today. Alrighty, so today we're talking about the three things that you're doing in trial, or I should say the three, the only three things that you're doing in trial. And uh, I think you might be surprised to hear there are only three things because you probably think that you are doing millions of things. And in reality, of course, you are. But what I want to really get across today is that there really are only three basic buckets that all of your tasks, especially when it comes to communication, falls into. And, that recognizing this is going to really help you simplify and get intentional and and be purposeful in your communication. So let's jump right in and talk about what those three things are. If you've been with me on a webinar where I've talked about this before, this will be familiar to you. But this is really fundamental to understand how you're only doing these three things. So the first thing is teaching when you are in trial, you are teaching in a variety of formats. So obviously you're teaching in the opening statement. In fact, I shouldn't say obvious because so often when I'm working with trial attorneys, uh, many of them skip the teaching section in the opening statement. And I'd like to do a whole episode on teaching and why it's so important. I won't get into that here. But in the opening statement, the type at least that I create with my clients, we always include an education or teaching section. And this is where you talk about what should have happened. And it gives context for the jurors before they go go and hear what did happen. So the teaching that you're doing in the opening statement can be a variety of things. It can be teaching in terms of liability like i just said what should have happened in the case the teaching can also be done where you're talking about the medical science in your case uh, the the causation for example is where another place where you would teach but you're also teaching when you are in closing so when we're talking about closing statement We're no longer really teaching about the facts in the case. Now we're teaching the jury how to arrive at their verdict. As we walk them through that verdict form, that's when we start teaching them again about how to make the decisions that they're going to have to make in the back room. So we're teaching again in closing. We're also teaching as we go through trial, if you think about this, your only time to talk directly to the jurors is an opening and closing. Talk with the jurors is in voir dire. But everything else that you're doing in trial comes out of the mouths of witnesses. And if you think about it, you're teaching, or at least you're not teaching, you're allowing someone else to teach when you, for example, examine your expert witnesses. That's also teaching. That teaching should support the teaching that you did in your opening. So teaching occurs all throughout trial. That is one of the the three things that you do. And it's important to understand this because if you don't know how to teach well, you are in trouble since this is a huge part of what it is you are doing or having others do at trial. For example as you're working with your expert witnesses beforehand, you both need to inform or help teach each other about the case. Meaning you're telling your witnesses what the case is about and what you hope that they teach about on the stand and your expert witnesses, if you've got good ones, are then helping you understand the medicine or the way the crash occurred or, you know, depending on the witness and helping you understand that thoroughly so that you can teach it an opening. And So there's this great teaching going back and forth even before trial happens. Here's the other thing about teaching is that jurors love a good teacher. Randy McGinn, who always dresses in a dress and cardigan, does that on purpose. And she'll tell you this. She dresses that way because when you see that kind of quote unquote outfit, that invokes the image of a teacher. And we know that we love our teachers, at least most of us did, at least going through elementary school. I don't know about high school. So teaching is a huge part of what you're doing at trial. You're doing it in opening when you're talking about liability and what should have happened. You're talking about it in terms of causation or the medicine or how the the injury occurred or the death occurred. You're doing it with your expert witnesses on the stand that you're allowing them to teach to the jury. You're doing it in closing when you teach the jury how to go through the jury uh, instructions and make their decision so teaching is one of the three things that you're doing in trial you're also storytelling storytelling occurs of course in opening where you are discussing the uh what happened, the defendant's conduct and how this whole thing came across and how the injury occurred and, and, or the death occurred and what the defendant did to make that happen. But you're also allowing storytelling to happen on the stand when you are examining your lay witnesses. So storytelling also occurs there where they're talking about what the person was like before or what they've lost since the person has now died, so on and so forth. And of course, you're storytelling again in closing when you're talking about what will happen if the jury doesn't help the plaintiff now and allow money in their verdict so that they can go on. So storytelling is a huge part. That's that second thing out of the three things that you're doing throughout trial. The third thing that you're doing in trial is you are dealing with resistance. So what I mean by that is if you think about, for example, David Ball's template, and my template borrows heavily from his in his Damages 3 book, he has the part of the opening called undermining. And so in the undermining section, that's where you deal with, in my words, the yeah butts. So if you have taught and given context to your jurors, and then you've told the story about what happened and the jurors are with you, they still may have some quote unquote yeah buts. like, well, yeah, but shouldn't they have done this or shouldn't they have avoided that? This is where you deal with resistance. And so David has a great way of doing that. Keith Mitnick has a great way of doing that with his, you know, putting it in context. There are a variety of ways to deal with the yeah buts in your case, the things that are going to trip you up. Basically, the defense arguments, right? The things that the defense are going to bring up, especially if you don't bring up and stand up and say, you know, what they didn't tell you, ladies and gentlemen, is boom, something that could blow up your case. Those are those defense arguments. And so you're dealing with resistance throughout trial. How? Well, in opening, as we just mentioned, you're dealing with it in the undermining section or however you choose to deal with it in opening. You're dealing with it in cross-exam as you are t- really dismantling their their experts on the stand and their version of events. That's how you deal with resistance there. You're dealing with resistance in closing when you teach the jurors how to argue for you in the verdict room, meaning if you hear Quote unquote defense argument, whatever that is in your case, here's what you say to your fellow jurors. So you're teaching the jurors how to deal with resistance. So as you can see, these three things you're constantly moving in and out of throughout trial. You're either teaching the jury, you yourself, or your expert witnesses on the stand. You're either storytelling, you yourself, or your lay witnesses on the stand. Or you're either dealing with resistance, which which is in your opening and teaching the jurors how to do it in closing or by cross-examining during trial. Now, how does all of this work in Wadir? Well, we'll talk about that as we move into some f- future episodes. But just to be thinking about this in terms of Wadir, all of your questions around teaching is all of the things like who here is familiar with angiograms or who here has ever had a XYZ medical procedure or is familiar with that? Is anyone here familiar with uh, traumatic brain injuries? That's all teaching stuff, right? Because when you're asking the jurors about that, you're getting to know what they already know and what you're going to have to teach throughout trial. So that's your teaching part in voir dire. You're also having uh, the types of storytelling questions when you ask jurors about their experiences with the things that you're going to be covering over trial. And that's gonna help you uh, know how to frame your arguments. So that's the quote unquote storytelling in voir dire, is when you ask the jurors about their personal experiences. First one is asking about their knowledge about issues in the case. The second one is getting at their experiences with the issues in the case. And you're also dealing with resistance in voir dire, and the fact that's mostly what you're doing, at least if you follow my version of voir dire, and that is getting at how they feel about the issues in your case, i.e., the defense arguments. So how how are how do they feel about those things that are in in question here that we're fighting over? That's where you're dealing with resistance in voir dire. Now, the reason why I wanted to do an episode on this in the podcast is for a few reasons. One is that I want to talk about these things in depth as we go throughout the future, future episodes. And I, so I want you to be able to refer back to this episode about how you're only doing three things in trial, because that will give you some context for when we're talking about these things in depth, you can come back to this podcast and listen to it. But really there's three things I think that will help you when you realize that there are only three things you're doing at trial. Three, 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 um, ways to kind of talk about this. The first is, I think it's really important that you know what you're doing in trial because that sets your intention. Meaning if you know that you are now in a part of trial or voir dire or opening or closing to be more specific, and that you are teaching, that informs your intention. That means that you are going to come from a place of delivering knowledge. And that sets the intention for that communication interaction. That means you're not going to be looking for input. That means you're not going to be wavering on what you're communicating. It means that you are in teacher mode. And that is going to inform your body language, which I'm going to talk about in just a minute. If you are in a part of trial or opening or you or closing, uh, where you are storytelling, that is going to inform your intention for the communication interaction as well. And it'll be much different. Now you are relaying information, but you're, instead of trying to inform your listener, you're really trying to get at their emotions. And you know, if we think about going back hundreds of thousands of years, maybe not thousands, but to the way, is this Plato? I'm going to sound ridiculous here, but you know, whoever came up with the ways to persuade an audience, you come back to this idea of logos, pathos, and ethos. And so logos is your logic and your reason. That's, you know, really appealing to the brain, basically. Look, this is why this argument makes sense. Your pathos is the appealing to the emotion. So we know now, we used to think it was all about logic, but we now know when it comes to decision making for anybody, but particularly with jurors, that it takes both, both logos, meaning it has to be logical, but it also has to have the emotional component. People make decisions using both of those things, not just logic, meaning that's why facts alone cannot win your case. You've got to have the emotional aspect. But then there's the third piece, which is the ethos or the credibility of the speaker. And so the argument goes that to be persuasive, you must have all three parts. You must have a logical and reasonable argument. You must have something that gets at the emotion of the listener, and you must also yourself be credible. When we're thinking about this in terms of our arguing or the three things we're doing in trial, you can kind of match these up, meaning that you're teaching, whenever you're teaching, whether on the stand or you yourself, you're in the logos part of the persuasive part of your argument, meaning you are now appealing to logic and reason because you are informing and and, and giving context, and that's kind of the brain part of the decision-making that jurors are going to have to eventually do. When you storytell, now you're tapping into the pathos or the emotional part of the argument. We're no longer informing or giving context or teaching. We're now appealing to the human side. And you can think about the ethos in terms of the dealing with resistance. And you think, well, how does, what does that have to do with the credibility of the speaker? Because, and this is, you know, David Ball really nails this quite well, in that when you go into the yeah, buts, of course, that's not his language, that's my language. You're really showing the, the listener that you've thought about this from all angles and that you are not afraid to explore the quote-unquote bad things in your case. You're not afraid to tell the jury that This is something that you are also concerned about and that you need to look at on your own and investigate. And here's the conclusion that you came to. So in dealing with resistance, you really can pick up this third part of the logos pathos ethos in that it increases your credibility as a speaker to not just put forward your version of events, but to also discuss the opposite side or the the bad quote unquote things in your case without fear and with ownership. So that's the dealing with resistance piece. So the first real um, boon or support or the reason why uh, thinking about trial in these three ways helps you is that it really sets the intention for what you're trying to do. And in fact, if you come out and work with me, you know that many times I ask you, what are you trying to do here? Are you teaching? Are you storytelling? Are you dealing with resistance? And knowing what you're trying to do really helps you get purposeful, which is the second piece. It absolutely informs your body language, meaning your body language is going to be different depending on which one of these three things you are attempting to do. For example, you've heard me talk about, and if you haven't, go back and listen to some of the body language episodes, but you've heard me talk about the two different types of body language. we have got the authoritative body language where the palms are down, voice curls down, weight is over both feet. That's the type of body language you want to use when you are sending information. So you're going to use a more authoritative body language when you are teaching. Of course, there's going to be some approachable in there because we don't want to be authoritative during our entire teaching episodes, or that would be boring. But we do definitely want to send the message that this is one-way communication. I know what I'm talking about. I have command of my subject. But when you are dealing with resistance, for example you're going to switch into approachable. At least at the beginning, you're going to ask questions to start out. Now, when you deal with resistance, you will eventually go back into teaching when you answer the question. But at the initial outset, you're going to change your body language and be more curious. So for example, you might say something now, before we came to trial, we had to investigate a few things. For example, isn't it possible that the doctor did X? And I would ask that as a question. Now, I go into teaching now when I answer the question, here's what we found. You're going to hear from expert so-and-so, and and he's going to tell you that, no, the doctor shouldn't have done blah, right? But you have a different body language when you ask the question. And people often ask me, why should I ask the question in undermining? Why can't I just say, we had to investigate a few things. Here's the first thing we had to investigate. And I said, because when you're in undermining, you want to echo what the juror sounds like in their own head. So if the juror is with you up until this point, but they still have some underlying questions, notice, questions, in their head, they're going to be saying, yeah, but what about this? Or shouldn't the doctor have done that? Or why didn't the plaintiff do this? Notice how all of those are in questions. If you ask a question, you immediately connect to the juror's brain because you sound like them. You sound like the thoughts that are already in their head. You don't sound like a lawyer. That's why. And when you ask questions, that's a different type of body language. So again, being purposeful and knowing what part of trial you're in and what you're attempting to do is going to inform your intention, which will then inform your body language. I mean, let's talk about storytelling, for example. Storytelling, you throw out authoritative and approachable rules. Those no longer apply. Now you are acting. You are actually adopting the body language of the different characters in your story. You're playing the doctor. Then you're switching into nurse. Then you're switching to the plaintiff who's laying on the ground. You're going back and forth. It's an absolutely different type of communication. In fact, this is where so many of you go wrong is that you stay in presenter mode when you should be in storyteller mode. Absolutely, totally two different things. So understanding that you're only doing three things in trial helps you be intentional. It helps you use the right body language. And and quite frankly, the third thing that it does is it helps you simplify. Things are already so confusing. You have so many things going on at trial Hopefully understanding the idea that you're really only doing three things and you're constantly switching out of those three things and those three buckets will help you calm down and breathe and realize that you really only have to nail in terms of communication three things, presenter mode, which is basically teaching, uh, acting mode, which is storytelling and dealing with resistance, which is pretty much teaching with some curiosity added to it. And that should help you feel a lot better. This is really not as hard as we're making it out to be. You don't have to be a million things, a million different things. You really just need to increase your teaching chops slash presentation chops, your storytelling chops, and then get a little curious in terms of the the dealing with resistance. All right. So that's going to kind of set the tone for some of the episodes that are to come. I'm not going to do them in order. So don't necessarily uh, be looking for them in order after this episode. But I just want to kind of mark this one as important as we start talking about these things, teaching, storytelling, dealing with resistance, as these are the three really pillars of trial and the only things you're doing. Yes, you were doing different things, different types of teaching, different types of storytelling, different types of dealing with resistance. But pretty much everything you're doing to in trial falls into one of three buckets. And I hope that that helps you to realize there's not as much as you think you needed to do, at least in terms of communication. All right. Until next time, keep doing the good work out there. We'll talk soon.
0: That's it for this episode of From Hostage to Hero. But head to our website, sorrydlm.com, for other must-have resources from Sari Delamart. Read the transcript of this podcast, watch trial tip videos, or download your free copy of Sari's article, Why Jurors Hate the Hobby Question. We're glad you joined us today, and until next time, remember that to lead a hostage to freedom, you must first free yourself.